What are you doing? The world's crazy. I have a dream. This nation will rise up. Live out the true meaning of its dream. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created. If we had decided 15 years ago to leave Afghanistan, it would have been really difficult. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Peter Robinson and Rob Long. I'm James Lilacs. Today we have Victor Davis Hanson and Eli Lake on Afghanistan. I can hear you! Welcome, everybody. It's the Ricochet Podcast. It's number episode 557. You ought to join us at ricochet.com because there's lots of stuff to talk about, and there's lots of good people there to talk about it with. Knowledgeable people, friendly people, people who enjoy a good spoiling fight. Join us, won't you? And uh, if you got something to get off your chest, that's a great place to do it. I'm James Lilacs here in Minneapolis with a few things to get off my chest. Peter Robinson is in California. Rob Long is in New York. And I both imagine that both of them, too, are like cans of soda that have spent 24 hours in a paint shaker in a hardware store. And then when you open them up, there will be a detonation of effervescence because we're all kind of mad about this. You know, let's start with this. People are saying, oh, it's worse than Saigon 75. What came to mind for me was not Saigon, but the failed attempt to rescue the hostages in the Carter administration. Because if there's one thing that we always thought that we could count on, it would be the competence of the military. I'm not blaming the soldiers for this, but that sort of laid bare were the last things that we kind of sort of believed could get the job done. And now we're seeing that the job isn't being done. And it's not necessarily because we can't, it seems as if there's any number of things that are preventing us from doing what needs to be done by rules of engagement, by specious decisions, by fatuous decisions, by lying politics. I could go on. Peter, Rob, what's your immediate take on the situation? I, I don't feel prepared to fizz. I'm less angry. I just finished watching the president's I, I, press conference. I don't know if the press conference is even the word for it. He called on two or three reporters from friendly organizations, friendly to him and to his administration. And even they asked questions that he couldn't, that were probing and that he couldn't really quite handle. So I feel more shaken. Um, imagine, so the press conference, what was it, yesterday or the day before with General Milley and the Secretary of Defense, and there were certain questions that they dodged. All the commentators said uh, they dodged those questions because, they're under orders either not to answer the questions or they have requests into the White House for the president to authorize. So the question was, will we go back and retake Bagram Air Force if we need to? And they both dodged it. Okay, so you put yourself in the position of the military, of the foreign policy people, the secretary of state. Joe Biden is the commander-in-chief, and in a crisis, the only way to get decisions made is to get the commander-in-chief at least to sign off on some large decisions. And in the press conference we just heard, he said he was not aware of any allies questioning our actions mm-hmm. in Afghanistan. Quite the contrary. The I contrary that, is what uh, he said. happened. Oh, excuse me. If you had watched the House of Commons yesterday, right. yeah, there haven't. You would, I mean, you would yeah. have seen. You would have seen members of 
both parties get up and lambaste the United States. So my point is we have a chief executive here who's simply not in touch with the fundamental realities of the situation, or so it seems to me. Rob? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, I don't think there are any allies that we have that haven't. <laughs> oh, I see. I'm sorry. That's I'm, the I'm opposite. <laughs> like, yes, like, yes. I'm not that any. Ha- I, I don't know any who have. I, I can't name one that hasn't. I don't think. I mean, at least does, does he just assume then that people aren't going to know that they're going to rely I, I on know. him? I, 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 who knows? I mean, he, you know, he, it's dispiriting. I mean, there's so many ways to unpack this. One is just just the sheer unpreparedness for this, which seems so strange. Yes. I mean, even if, I mean, you know, the continuity of uh, the military, the continuity of sort of below the layers in, in diplomatic areas, I mean, it's pretty much the same as the people who were the architects and negotiated the capitulation agreement from 20, whatever it was, 2018, 2019, in which it was sort of assumed that the Taliban would take control of the country. That was the there was the blueprint for the Taliban take over the country. I mean, anybody who's surprised that Taliban took over the country is, is illiterate. And read that we—that's the—that was the essence of the paper that we signed with the Taliban and not with the Afghan government. And the assumption was, well, why sign it with the body that's not going to exist the minute we leave? Um, for better or for worse, that this is unfolded in a way that could be predicted easily. And the fact that. It wasn't, or that seems to have caught them off guard. Seems so. I mean, I'm, I'm having my, I'm having a really hard time wrapping my head around it. Like, where is the mm. failure there? If I mean, if not everywhere, then where specifically is the fit? Did somebody ask a question like, "This is going to be easy, right?" And then some toady said, "Oh yes, sir, it'll be easy." And it, where I mean, I'm sitting in the West Village of Manhattan. I know it wasn't going to be easy. Um, right. So there's that right. the operational failure, which is catastrophic and very much like. Uh, um, Desert One is that what it was called? That, that was Desert One. The, the, the not, not operational conceptually. I mean, if, if they had failed to follow through on a on a good plan that would have got everybody out, that'd be great. But conceptually, it seems as if they did absolutely everything backwards. Backwards. Well, I, I just mean they're not doing it. I mean, even now he can't answer questions. When I saw this this press conference it was terrifying. Even now he can't answer questions about things that really should have been part of the planning. Like this, mm-hmm. this is not a new, like what uh, airstrips, refugees, translators, um, uh, 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 friends of the American military, loyal Afghan friends of the American military, American personnel, contract, all that stuff. That should have been like, yeah, we thought of that. We thought of that two months ago. That's what we. That's what we did for two months. We planned this. Instead, it seems like we decided on Tuesday to start. We started, and it's like you know, it's like moving your house. And you didn't buy any boxes, right. and you didn't call the movers, and you didn't do anything. But you got to get out, and you got to get out by midnight. I mean, it's very strange to me. It's it's really and you, haven't bought a, you haven't bought a house yet either. <laughs> oh, yes, that too. You're going to stay with the neighbors. Applied for the mortgages. And so there's I, that I, part I, of it, and then there's the other part of it, which is like the whether it's Saigon, and I don't think it's the fall of Saigon. I mean, maybe it'll have a, as much impact. I think it might, but it's the fall of Saigon, 1975. That was at least you know. 52, 53,000 American deaths later, that a country had been torn apart. It was a different country in 1975 than it was in 1962 or 1964, Tonkin Gulf, right? Completely different country, completely different culture. So I don't think it's the same, but I, I do think it's, it, it is one more sign of our, the, um, the, ide- the ideal that Americans have for America 
and the purposes we think we have for our military are out of sync with the commitments we have made 20, 30, 50, 60, 80 years ago. And that, um, I don't know how to resolve that, but that's that. Well, one of the strangest things is just Biden's seeming indifference to all this. Is though, well, you know, you can't make you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs and slaughtering some chickens and putting the hands back in burkas. Uh, speaking of omelets, though, you know how to make a really good one? You need good tools. Question, how does your favorite restaurant consistently make such delicious food? Well, the short answer, they have access to the right kitchen tools. With made-ins professional-quality cookware and kitchenware, anyone is capable of making restaurant-quality food at home. Made-in produces professional-quality cookware and knives, too, for those who love to cook. They source the finest material and partner with renowned craftsmen to make premium kitchen tools available directly to you without the markup. Made-in products are made to last, and they offer a lifetime guarantee. Their cookware distributes heat evenly and can easily go from the stovetop to the oven. And their knives, uh, they're fully forged, perfectly balanced, and they stay sharp. They have 28,000 or more five-star reviews. And their products are used by some of the world's best chefs at the Michelin-starred restaurants around the world. Uh, Peter Robinson previously gave a great testimonial about how he loved them. Rob Long is here to tell you how he loves his made-in utensil or item or pan or knife. What is it, Rob? I have a carbon steel pan. Um, it is fantastic. Um, carbon steel is great. If you if you uh, like cast iron, it's like cast iron, but it's lighter. Um, but the pan is really, really good. And I was um, pleased to know that a couple of friends of mine who are, in fact, professional chefs use this very pan. Um, and I've been a little bit – I was a little nervous about using ca- uh, uh, carbon steel just because I don't know why. I just was. Um, and I'm a huge believer. Um, and, and and they're not expensive. And the great thing about these pans is that they last – carbon steel and, like, uh, and cast iron both. But it, this carbon steel pan lasts forever. I mean, they are indestructible. Um, they are go in the oven. They go on the stovetop. They go everywhere. Uh, and um, and this I'm just I'm glad these guys are like doing a really great product. And I um, uh, put it this way, you know, they always mm-hmm. send us a sample. I I bought a bunch, so I'm not just a, I'm a freeloader. I actually have them. I purchased them with my own cash uh, because they are uh, really really good and really solid. And um, another one of these great um, uh, advertisers we have, great products we have that somebody just doing a really good thing. Uh, and and um, and delivering on all their promises. Well, you can find out whether or not Rob is right. Spoiler: He is by going to Made In, yes. and you'll get a, you get a fifteen percent discount off your first order with the promo code Ricochet. It's the best discount available online anywhere for Made In products. Go to MadeInCookware.com/slash/Ricochet, and then use the promo code Ricochet for fifteen percent off your first order. That's MadeInCookware.com/slash/Ricochet. Use promo code Ricochet. Made In. Better cookware for better meals. And we thank Maiden for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And now we welcome to the podcast Victor Davis Hansen, Martin Ely Anderson, Senior Fellow in Residence in Classics and Military History at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, Professor of Classics Emeritus at California State University, Fresno, National Syndicated Columnist and author over a dozen books. Listen to his podcast, The Classicist and the Traditionalist, wherever fine podcasts are distributed, and we welcome him back to the Ricochet Podcast. Although we wish it was to talk about some great turn that American society, culture, and politics have taken that will lead us to a greater position of strength. But let's start with Afghanistan. Uh, what would you say to those people who are saying, oh, you know, like the president, hey, you know, I had a little chaos. It was inevitable. What are you going to do? 
Well, I listened to his press conference, and that's pretty much what he said. So it's absurd that you, any, any military in the world, even the Russians when they left in 1980, the last man out was a military officer, not the first. So we pulled our military out first. It's absurd you don't consult with your NATO allies about what you're doing. We didn't do that. It's absurd you have no idea where 10,000 Americans are, much less 80,000 of their Afghan uh, helpers that we need to get out. It's absurd you leave $50 billion of military equipment, and which will turn Afghanistan into a pre-9-11 terrorist haven and a weapons mart for every would-be jihadist in the world. And so there's all these absurdities, and it's absurd. It's actually derelict to tell Americans there's no problem, basically, getting to the, just traffic. So if you want to go get out, then just go to the airport. And if 10,000 people try to do that, a lot of them are going to get killed or shot or beaten up. And so, you know, for too long people have said, well, he gets an exemption because he's 78 and he's non-compos mentos. But the wages of that exemption are people are going to die. And uh, that was the worst press conference. And I've heard, I think, all the way back to Dwight D. Eisenhower press conference as a little boy. And that was the worst one. Uh, I thought the last one was the worst. I thought the one before that. But they keep getting geometrically worse. Worse why? Because because the President of the United States seems out of touch with reality? Because he's very much yes, in touch with reality and he's misleading us no, intentionally? you're absolutely right, Peter. You're absolutely right. He doesn't connect with reality. He says things that are absolutely... He says that I had to inherit this, this plan, uh, but then... Uh, and then he tells you that the plan basically was working, but then he said, then I had to... Uh, break it. I was bound by it. And you're saying, well, you're always bound by Trump plans, you know, the Iran deal, the, uh, getting out of the Paris Accord, the Abrams Accord, or it was just, just this one. And then you're saying everything went so well and you're bragging about it. But then you said, I had to do it this way. So you had to do it. You wanted to do it. You didn't do it. And then he just, he just admits large sections of the problem. And as I said, what is he going to say about the weaponry? We planned this. And then he says, well, you know, we would, we got down to 2,500. Would you want troops there now? And I thought, well, yeah, we have 6,000, yes. over two and a half times more than we, we used to have two weeks ago. And we're probably going to have to have 10,000. And we had 10,000 troops here if you count the NATO contingent. And so America was split 50-50. 50% said, screw it, I'm sick of it, it's 20 years, our military and our diplomatic people and our politicians didn't give a convincing argument why to keep staying there. And the other 50% said, well, you haven't lost a dead, dead American in 18 months, you can control the airspace with 2,500, 3,000 at Bagram. Uh, you can stop, you can orderly get our equipment, our allies, and our Americans out over a year, and maybe you can even prop up the Afghan military and just see how it goes. We have 150 installations worldwide. What's so bad about having 2,500 when nobody's dying? That was, those are both legitimate arguments. But where they, where both sides agree on, whatever your argument is, A or B, you do not withdraw in shame, dishonor, and death, and destruction, and chaos the way he did. Here's what the press and the Democratic Party said in putting forward Joe Biden as the Democratic nominee for president. Yes, look, of course, he'll be 78 when he takes office. He'll be a year older when he takes office than Ronald Reagan was when he left office. We understand that. We understand this isn't the dynamic, the, the man possessed of sheer animal spirits that Joe Biden was for much of his time in the Senate. 
and most of his time as vice president. Well, we get all that, too. But he's not Donald Trump. The exigency of the moment is to get rid of Donald Trump. And this is the important part. He'll be surrounded by professionals. He's going to go back to the people who know how Washington works. Get rid of Mike Pompeo, this Trump upstart, and put in Antony Blinken, who's held one position after another. He's gone wealthy family in New York. He knows Wall Street. He knows the F Council on Foreign Relations. He's, and in the military, he'll he'll let the military. He's not going to push the generals around and humiliate people the way Trump did to the general. He's going to work with them. Okay, how could this have happened? The president, let's say the president is 78, he's been, but he's supposed to be surrounded by people who know what they're doing. What about them? Well, let's look at all of these people that he brought in. Wendy Sherman, the deputy secretary, who said the other day, this is personal for me, and I'm sure that uh, the Taliban thought, oh, my God, Wendy's going to get an F-16 pilot a bomb in a minute or two. She said it's personal. Or we had the U.N. ambassador who has been in every administration, and she said, uh, you know, that you're going to be ostracized from the rules-based uh, international order. That really scared the Taliban. And then we had this the guy, the, the uh, spokesman, Ned Chance, for the uh, State Department, and he made a lot of other threats to the Taliban that if they really, 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 really keep it up, they're really, really, really going to be not part of the international community. And we have a lot of leverage over them. We have so much leverage, and why don't just clear the, the road to the, the airport? So these people, I think that's what the election of 2016 was about. There were a lot of people who came desperate, warranted or not, wise or stupid, that the traditional CV that you're referencing was not an argument for competence, but it was an argument that these people have never been out in the private workplace, they don't live outside of the coastal corridors, and what they think are impressive and credentials that ensure success from the last 20 years of CIA screw-ups, military screw-ups, diplomatic screw-ups, political screw-ups, that they weren't impressive. And uh, we were we were also told, Peter, that Donald Trump would, had cheapened the office of president by his crude tweets, his callousness. That might be true. And that Joe Biden, who had no record of not being crass, let's get that straight. And this is a guy who had a whole history of racialist insults, whether clean black or junkie or you put you all in chains or the corn pop sagas. But nevertheless, we were told that he was good old Joe Biden from Scranton. But when you looked at the actual record, the Abrams Accord versus the Iran deal, a secure border versus chaos, no inflation versus inflation, uh, deterrence on policing versus critical race and legal theory that led to crime. I could go down, but all of them did not pull in Joe Biden's favor before what he hinted about before. So it was basically people did not vote for Joe Biden. They voted because he didn't tweet and he didn't say that Anthony Fauci threw like a girl and all of that other gratuitous, unnecessary insults that Trump did. But they did vote unknowingly or maybe knowingly for a very destructive, therapeutic, progressive agenda. And I have a feeling that there was an understood pact that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris and a squad said, you know what, nobody in their right mind would ever vote for us. 
and good old Joel Biden from Scranton is going to carry us across the finish line. And then after six or seven months, he's going to implode. And we're going to hear, we're already hearing the whisperings that Joe may not be, the, the, the press is woken up saying, oh my God, what those nutty people on the right said in, about him being in the basement might be true. This is kind of weird. Uh, they're, and they're whispering and, and, they're, and they're, the anonymous sources are back. And we're going to see a transition in the next six months from the hard left to, to ease him out. I really do believe that. You know, one of the things that the hard left has done in this country is change the debate so that we have to say equity instead of include instead of equality, so that we have to infuse everything with race, et cetera, et cetera. And we were expected that this was going to infect the universities. You know, we expected that. And maybe some corporate boardrooms. But the big surprise to a lot of people is the way that the institutions we expected to be rather clear-minded and hard-nosed about the world turned out to have succumbed to it as well. We got that when we had the lectures on the, you know, from our own military about uh, race and critical race theory adjunct matters. But now we have something today from a British uh, chief of defense staff, Nick Carter, who said, and uh, quote, I think you have to be very careful using the word enemy to describe the Taliban, which echoes something that we've heard from officials here, too, as well. He says we have to be patient and that the Taliban, quote, want an Afghanistan that is inclusive for all, which, of course, they don't. Joe Biden has spoken of the Taliban's no doubt existential crisis they're having at the moment as they try to figure out exactly who they are. We continue to, 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 to be reminded that our leaders see these people through the blinkered prism of the most modish, fattish, fatuous intellectual concerns of today, of this culture. This can't end well. They are unable to grasp what they're even looking at or fighting and not even being able to say that they're fighting them. Uh, I agree. I say that that cadre and who they represent and where they come from hates half of America more than they do the Taliban. They find non-Americans, uh, internationalists, exotic, uh, non-white male Christians in the Middle West, better people. So that's part of it. And a part of it is this therapeutic culture is, is one of narcissism. So when all of this is going down, these people really believe that if you fly the pride flag at the embassy, or you brag that you have gender studies at the University of Kabul, or that your soldiers are, you know, woke, or they've had the proper debate, that people are going to be impressed by that. that. This is who we are, and this is not who we are, that kind of talk. And then when we get into the Lloyd Austin says he's going through the entire roster to spot out white uh, extremism, and Miley and the other Joint Chiefs vie with one each other to virtue signal their wokeness about Kendi and, and critical race theory. And we're going to go down the road to proportionality and disparate impact. Only we're not, are we? Because 33% of this country are white males. And if you look at the fatality records in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan, they're about 73 to 76% white males. So are suddenly Joe Biden and Austin and Miley say, uh-oh. We're way over our quota of dead, and these white males have been overrepresented, so let's pull them back from the airport and let people of color come in and die in proportion, because that's the, the logical trajectory of absurdity where these people are from. They should have all resigned. All the Joint Chiefs should resign. Austin should have resigned, because it's a corrupt culture. To get to be, this wasn't true of Omar Bradley or Eisenhower or Matthew Ridgway or Curtis LeMay or George Patton. They had their problems, but now to be a top-ranking officer in the Pentagon 
the curses of Norm is you virtue signal how woke you are to Elizabeth Warren and that crowd. Then they don't say you revolved in from General Dynamics and you're going to revolve out or from Leathon and you're going to go out or Lockheed or Northrop. They give you a pass on that and then you can go in there and you can make a lot of money when you get out. And you're never going to be judged on your military record. You're never going to be judged on the bombing campaign in Libya or Afghanistan or Syria, any of that. And so when I saw all those ribbons on Millie's chest, I thought, wow, what is that? For the brilliant strategy in Libya? For, I don't know, saving Afghanistan? What was it all for? I don't know. Taking, uh, setting aside the failure of uh, elected and appointed leaders, and just talking about the American culture, there is, there has been a certain consensus in that horseshoe, famous horseshoe shape of the left and the right of the, what are we doing? What are we doing there? Why are we in, why are we in Afghanistan? Um, fiasco leaving, obviously, but the big question is, why are we there? Now, my answer to that, you, 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 you propose two, you know, solution A, solution B. I, I think I generally tend to solution B, which is Taliban's living in caves better than Taliban running a country. Taliban living in caves was ch cheaper, you know, I mean, cheap compared to a $700 billion plus billion dollar defense budget. Seemed like a good price. No, no 9-11s. Um, 20 years after World War II, we didn't say, let's bring the troops home from Hamburg. Let's bring the troops home from Japan. They were there to hold a defensive line against and to deter, right? But if we don't have the, uh, the stomach for that, which I guess we don't as a country, um, why are we spending seven hundred billion dollars? I mean, aren't the aren't the liberals right? If we're if we're if we're not gonna if we're not gonna if Afghanistan was too hot too heavy a load to carry, which was sort of a tiny fraction of our overall defense budget, why not just cut the defense budget in half tomorrow? By the way, it's almost four percent of the GDP. Bring everybody home from overseas and say, you know what, America's good. We're going to defend our borders. That's what we're doing. Well, the left, left doesn't believe that quite. You're, I think you're 75% representing what they believe. But when you said defend their borders, when they, they don't want to spend. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah, that's uh, right. I, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Point yeah, taken. When they, I, 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 I use the wrong phrase with yeah. the wrong guy. I hear. When you bring all the money, yeah. you don't spend the money, you bring everybody yeah. home, then what? You, do the, is the left saying we're going to balance the budget? We're going no. What they're saying is let's use this for even more massive woke redistribution. Well, program. fine, but that's a secondary consideration. I think the left and the right are a huge part of the right. It seems to me I could be wrong. Agree generally with the idea that we shouldn't be yes, Afghanistan. I think so too. I think. Um, and if that's the case, then what are we doing with any of that money? Why don't we? Why don't we stop spending all of it on this on the largest federal program? I mean, an enormous. I mean, what is it like? Ten, ten percent of the discretionary budget is 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 the defense. I mean, it's a huge part of the federal budget. Why not just take it? Why well, not I just think, cut it? I, I think there there was a uh, a consensus growing because the right was was really the drivers that drove the neoconservatives crazy were the right base that said they don't want to be in Afghanistan, and they made the further argument that their children were all dying there, and they did disproportionately, and they didn't think it was in a cost-benefit analysis worth it. So I have no problem with that. But the problem, and, you know, why do we ever go in the Middle East at all? And the, the, 
it started out we needed oil because we imported 60%. Then we became energy, and before Biden, we were energy sufficient. And then it was, well, we still have to be there because the Russians and the Chinese are using the oil and they're going to cut it off for our allies and they, they're going to stole it. But, so it got more and more tenuous. So I think you're right. And now with sophisticated drones and satellite weaponry, we can intervene as we showed with ISIS. And we, we bombed the SHIP out of ISIS without putting puts on the ground. And people said, if you don't get in between the Kurds and the Kurds, Kurds and the Turks, your isolationists, and it's all going to blow up. That didn't happen. So I tend to agree with you that most Americans feel that whether it's technology or whether it's changing conditions, the Middle East and the greater Middle East is not strategically significant to us, except in the idea that we don't really need it, but we really don't want to make it a force multiplier of our rival's economy and military and geographic strategic location. So I... I What's what I think we are. I think we all agree on that. Last, last question, if I may. This is Peter again. Fall of Saigon. Tremendous humiliation, it felt. But it didn't endanger West Berlin. It didn't, it didn't move our position elsewhere in the world. It didn't weaken NATO. Iranian hostage crisis in some ways, an even worse humiliation because it was so protracted. It finally ends when Ronald Reagan takes office. And a decade later, the Berlin Wall falls. And two years after that, the Soviet Union collapses. You see what I'm asking here. To what extent is this an event that permanently damages our standing in the world? And to what extent is it an event from which we can recover that indeed may lead in some ways the American people to say, no, not that, Mm -hmm. that may lead to, may clear the political system for a kind of renewal. Maybe I'm asking too much. Maybe that's... No, no, you're right. That's a very good question. And uh, I think you're right because you're talking essentially about the resiliency of America. And we do have the largest economy still in the world where... One American produces twice the goods and service, or almost twice the goods and services, of three Chinese counterparts. We have the largest military in the world. We have the second largest number of nuclear weapons. We have the best universities in science, medicine, by far. Uh, we control popular culture global-wise. We have, we're the head of tech, Silicon Valley. And I could go on. And so, yeah, it, are we going to be invaded or the, I don't know, but there's two or three differences I think now from 1975 in Saigon and 1984 when we withdrew the troops after the Reagan bombing the year before, or the 1980. And the first is uh, this is not an isolated incident. It's more like the perceptions of Jimmy Carter when he seemed inept on the economy on social policy, on foreign policy, and then finally, he, in, in extremists, he issued the Carter Doctrine. Remember that? And then he bit his lip, and he actually increased the, the defense budget. And he said that under the Carter Doctrine, if the Soviet Union tries to alter the geopolitical balance in the Middle East, we're going to stop them. That was a pretty radical thing to say. Right. So we, we, but what I'm getting now is 
this is a force multiplying effect or it's a logical result of paying people to stay home and not work, uh, borrowing not Trump's $1 trillion, but $2 trillion deficit, reaching $30 trillion in debt, uh, turning the country into basically two racial camps and saying that the civil rights legacy of Martin Luther King that our race is incidental, not essential to our is out the window. And we're now to go back to true civilization uh, tribalism. Or we don't have a border anymore. Borders are construct. Two million people are scheduled to cross illegal in a time of a pandemic in this fiscal year. So this is part of that. And it, it creates to our enemies a new idea that this generation of Americans that rioted for 120 days, or if you're on the left, stormed the Capitol, whatever image you want, and the country is torn apart, and it's gone from two controversial presidents, and now maybe there's an opportunity that there hadn't been in the before because this is not a one-off. What, what you and I were talking about is every five or ten years we screw up. Right. But otherwise pretty solid. But now the images were screwing up all the time, not because... All the time and in every way. Yes, because it's symptomatic of a toxic disease that we are suffering. And I think there's some argument that we're, the wages of affluence and leisure have kind of innervated this country. And we're more uh, fighting for these scraps among each other. Mostly the bicoastal elite is fighting to see who gets this woke prize and who gets that woke prize. But there are so many estranged people in this country for a variety of reasons that we don't have a unity anymore. And then when they look at Joe Biden, we've never had a president. You, you pointed it out, Peter, that is that old and was obviously during the campaign cognitively unable to handle get... the job. And he is cognitively unable to handle the job. And so, and then when you add another force multiplier of an obscene, whatever people think of Trump, 93% of all media coverage was negative. And what that told Trump is they hated his guts. And if he sneezed the wrong way, it was going to be, you know, another Russian collusion or Hunter Laptop is Russian disinformation or you abuse Congress, we're going to impeach you or we're going to impeach you when you're not. He knew that. Biden has the opposite idea of deterrence. He knows that if he picks a piece of egg off his chin and puts it in his mouth or he walks into a, a the press come, I just got my butt wiped. They're going to tell everybody he's Cicero or Pericles. And so that, that empowers him. It really does. There's no check on him. And there's no check on the, the absurdities that Wendy Sherman said the other day, or Jake Stull, or, or Anthony Blinken, or all these people. Because they, they feel that they're the chosen, uh, and they're so much morally and ethically superior, and they've got all these Rhodes Scholarships and this Ivy League degree and this Stanford degree, and they're just so better than everybody. And the media, they intermarry, and they have this idea of themselves, and they have not a clue that half the country thinks they're absolutely absurd and wants nothing to do with them. Right. And so that's what people are looking at. So I was looking at the Chinese newspapers yesterday. They're all, the one, ones in English are all as everything is communist affiliated, they're they're funny. I mean, they're just outright blatant. Message to our Taiwanese brothers: You would be crushed in any uh, if you provoke us. You would be crushed in 24 hours. And of course, the Americans would be as effective as they were in Afghanistan. And the Russians are saying the same thing. And the Iranians are saying the same thing. Joe Biden wasn't in office more than three months, and we had a Mideast war. 
And then we, had, and that was because Iran and its surrogates said, you know what, uh, he's he's going to he restored aid to the radical Palestinians, seven hundred million dollars, and he wants to open up dialogue with us, even though we're on our way pretty close to get a, getting a bomb, and he doesn't like Netanyahu, and now is a good time to just strike some blows. And they were wrong that that Netanyahu responded and inflicted a bad defeat on them, but they did that because of a perception. And wars start not from accidents. It starts when people are not aware of the relative strength of all the parties concerned. By any measure, we still, in our decadence and decline, are the most powerful country in the world. But when a, a weak power looks at a powerful country, as Hitler did to the United States or the Soviet Union, or to Great Britain. All three had more resources than Hitler. But when they did not want to fight, or they did not want to detour, then they, they suffer additional waves of decadence. Mm. And they think, you know what, if I had that power, I would be killing people left and right, but it doesn't really matter they have it. In fact, it's better they have it because they don't want to use it, and so I'm going to try to test them. When everybody's clear about your relative strength, like, you know, I went to a pretty bad high school, and everybody knew that if you you went up to Geronimo Rodriguez, he's going to knock your block off. And if you went over to Henry Gonzalez, who was 5'2", he might not do it, but he was going to fight and try to scratch your eyes out. And then there was big, pudgy Ben Ben Lopez, overweight and big and strong, but you could go up and hit him in the head, he wouldn't do a damn thing. He could. So everybody knew the relative strength of everybody else. And so there was a, an unspoken peace. But when the United States conveys the idea that for all that, $50 billion in there, uh, we're not going to do any uh, equipment abandon, abandon, or what Biden said, we have assets over the horizon. Have you ever heard that term before? Over the horizon? Behind the hill? I mean, yeah, I'm still stuck, Victor, on your, your uh, idea of uh, him as our Cicero. I await his first Philippic, although if you asked him what a Philippic was, he might say it's one of those princes in England. Uh, Victor Davis Santos, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank it's, you for having it's me. It's been great. We can go on forever, and uh, we hope to have you back again. Thank you, Victor. Thanks, Victor. The uh, thing I mentioned before uh, about uh, cooking, right? Well, i got something else to tell you. It's not, you know, tools. you got the great tools, fine. But what about the quality of the food that you cook? Well, and that leads us to only one place, really, Butcher Box. You can soak up the last moments of summer with Butcher Box, you know, because it's, it's waning on us. Maybe you're getting together with friends and family you haven't seen in forever, spending time doing what you might have missed out on last year. No matter what, the last thing you should stress about in your cookouts to come is cooking. Luckily, today's sponsor, ButcherBox, wants you to enjoy a proper celebration. That's why they're offering new members free chicken, burgers, and hot dogs. If you sign up today, today, okay, free chicken, free burgers, free hot dogs, yes. With ButcherBox, the process could not be simpler. Once you've signed up, choose your box and your delivery frequency. They've got five boxes, four curated box options, as well as the popular custom box. You can always get exactly what you and your family love. Next, ButcherBox ships your order frozen at the peak of freshness and packed in an eco-friendly, 100% recyclable box. And finally, you get great tasting, high-quality meat delivered right to your door with free shipping. i got to tell you something. I've been in quarantine for 10 days because, yeah, tested positive for COVID. And that means that we've been going through the fridge and eating a lot of stuff that's in the freezer because I haven't been able to go to the store. But the best part of that is seeing that butcher box box and knowing that when I defrost that, I'm going to have the best steak, the best chicken, the best bacon, the best hamburger. And, yeah, I've been uh, sort of hitting the butcher box stuff a little bit harder than the others because it's my fave. 
ButcherBox wants you to enjoy the rest of the summer with this special deal. ButcherBox is giving our listeners, you, a special offer of three pounds of chicken breast, two pounds of burgers, and one pack of hot dogs for free, for, for nothing. Right now, new members get the special deal when they sign up at butcherbox.com slash ricochet. So go there. Three pounds of chicken breast, two pounds of burgers, one pack of hot dogs for free at butcherbox.com slash ricochet. Ooh, that's your first box. It won't be your last. We thank ButcherBox for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. Now we welcome to the podcast Eli Lake, Bloomberg Opinion Column, discovering national security and foreign policy. He's the senior national security correspondent for the Daily Beast and covered national security and intelligence for the Washington Times, the New York Sun, and UPI. Follow him at Twitter, <laughs> at the uh, Eli Lake. Although I don't know why you're on Twitter when there's so many Afghan experts telling us it was bad to do this during fighting Season. I want to. I wanted animated for Bugs Bunny and uh, Elmer Fudd doing the Wabbit season. You know, except it's hunting season. You know, poppy season, fighting season. Poppy season, fighting season. Okay, we'll get to Afghanistan in a second. I want to get to this from Rasmussen, which just appeared. Uh, apparently, according to this latest poll that Rasmussen just had, uh, most voters believe that Joe Biden will not serve out his term, and they don't think the Kamala Harris is ready to step up. They say only only 43% people say that uh, she's qualified to assume the duties of the presidency. A, do you think that's going to happen? And B, what do you think about her ability to do, perform that job? You know, I, I can't predict the future. I think his, you know, Joe Biden's, if you want to call it a performance, his, his public appearances in the last week have just been pathetic. Um I obviously, you know, I cover covered the Afghanistan war since the beginning, so uh, I'm probably more informed than the average voter. But anybody who believes when Joe Biden says something like, you know, I haven't seen any evidence that people are questioning our leadership around the world as he just did today, it's absurd. There, I think the, the UK Parliament just voted to denounce him. And he's saying this in a press conference, not even like, what, 24 hours later. Um, so, and on and on and on. I mean, he's insisting that there's no al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. Nobody who's an expert on this, even the UN, which is pretty squishy most of the time, is saying that uh, there is an al-Qaeda presence, the Taliban never severed ties as they were supposed to under Trump's agreement. And even the justification for this as he's come under criticism that this is like, you know, his hands were tied, Trump made this agreement. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I, what is the other Trump policies or agreements that you've continued. And I thought you ran as the anti-Trump. And, uh, you know, I I have no problem as a someone who's center-right saying that Trump's agreement with the Taliban was a disgrace. Uh, Biden's implementation of that surrender is even more of a disgrace. And in some ways, it's worse because there was a very bad and unenforceable agreement and a political solution that the Trump administration was pursuing with the Taliban, which is bad enough. But Biden made the calculation that he didn't care whether or not there would be some sort of political agreement before he would withdraw all American forces, thus, you know, pre you know, being the catalyst for this particular moment. And if I could, there's just one other thing that Biden said um, this week at one of his appearances, uh, and I think it was into the ABC interview on Good Morning America with George Stephanopoulos. He, he repeated this line that he had said during the campaign when he's asked to meet the press, which is, do you, you know, basically, what do you have to say to all the Afghans that we're abandoning that will now go into darkness because the Taliban is taking over the country? 
and he goes into this whole thing about how, well, you know, there's this problem with women's rights in Western China and the Uyghurs and all these human, we can't just respond to all these human rights problems everywhere else. You know, we, we're, you know, we're only one country. Now, in the abstract, if this, this is an argument that I, you know, that you could be somewhat defensible if we were talking about, I don't know, the genocide in Rwanda. But we, this is a situation where, where Biden's actions are causing the horrors that we are now seeing in Afghanistan. For him not to be able to distinguish between America not being able to rescue every vulnerable person all around the world when something terrible happens with understanding that this is all resulting as a result, you know, because of what he has decided to do with drawing the final 2,500 American forces, uh, it's just a profound act of moral illiteracy. And it really raises a question as to who the president is. Does he have the values that we'd hoped that he would? If Trump had said something like that, we wouldn't really be surprised because he was open about these sorts of things. But this is supposed to be an American president who has empathy, who you know is restoring America's standing in the world, who's going to renew alliances and democracy and all this blather that doesn't mean anything now that he has done this one heinous act as I see it. And, uh, you know, I mean, the stain is on him and the stain is on his cabinet. I mean, this is terrible. Eli, could I, you are a professional watcher, writer about, observer of the United States military and, and diplomacy. And so if, if I may, you've just told us about the president. Yeah. Absent him from the equation, how could this have happened, meaning the Pentagon, those people are supposed to be professionals. Likewise, at the State Department, Antony Blinken has been back and forth between Wall Street and diplomatic circles. He and the people around him are supposed to be professionals. Even if you have a president who I think we were chatting earlier with Victor, and Victor just stipulates now that Joe Biden is mentally incapable of grasping all that you need to grasp to do the job. But the military, they just went through four years of Donald Trump. <clears throat> we now know that General Milley and others were, in effect, trying to protect the country against what they saw as Trump's worst tendencies. So, 10 to 15,000 Americans left behind. Bagram Air Force Base, which is just outside Kabul and has two runways instead of the one Air Force Base that we still control surrendered immediately. I, I saw a graphic on Twitter, not always a reliable source, needless to say, but the numbers of small arms and missiles and tanks, the weaponry we've left behind is staggering, just vast. So my question is, from the point of view of a professional analyst of professional figures, how did this happen? Well, um, there's, a, there's a lot of CYA going on right now. So you're hearing now the intelligence community is leaking, Pentagon's leaking. We just saw this story about the descent cable from the embassy in Kabul, uh, all of which were saying we were warning something like this was going to happen. Um, but again, they went ahead with it. And I cannot help but think if this was Trump in a second term, we would have seen these leaks when they would have made a difference before the decision was made. 
they would have done everything they could to sort of slow roll him. And indeed, he was slow rolled because he wanted to bring everybody home before the end of his first term, and he wasn't able to do that. Um, so that's the first point, which is that, you know, Biden was supposed to be the return to normal, and the government did not work in a normal way under Trump. You had the professional national security bureaucracy in opposition to Trump, even though he is the commander in chief. And I believe that that was a real strain on our republic. And that was itself a very bad thing. But it did produce, at least in some cases, good results, such as we didn't fully abandon Afghanistan under Trump. And even though he tweeted that we were getting out of Syria, he was talked back into like allowing some folks in. So there was this, you could say, a silver lining. With Biden, the return of the civilian full control of the military and all these things also returned. So they didn't stop him. They sort of went along with it, even though we now know, and I believe, that the advice that he got from his Secretary of Defense Austin, from General Milley, and others was, let us leave a small contingency here. We don't want a repeat of the nightmare of what happened in 2011 with Iraq, which took played out actually over three years as opposed to three weeks. Um, and so there was an effort to try to persuade him, but once he made that decision, then the Pentagon did something that is inexplicable to me, which is that it just focused on protecting their own 2,500 forces and got out as quickly as possible so as to avoid any potential flare-ups with the Taliban, almost forgetting as a side note that there were American citizens, there was the our diplomats, there were allied diplomats, there were Afghan translators and Afghans who helped us and all of these other people that we're now trying to save as if, I mean, that's what the military, that's one of the main jobs the military is supposed to do there in a situation like that. And they just went ahead with a strategy that only sought to protect themselves and get out of harm's way as quickly as possible. And if you remember in that infamous, I believe it's the July 8th or July 9th press conference that Joe Biden uh, gave in which he said a number of things that have come back to haunt him, he boasted of the speed of that military withdrawal was not a thought given to the fact that he was stranding all these other folks. Now, we can argue, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there were, covering the intelligence community for a long time, there, there's always going to be, they always hedge. So they never say, if you do this, Kabul will fall in two months. It's always, you know, there's this amount of chance that they give a range. Analysts can sort of say anything, uh, you know, it's, they're not oracles. So it's important to understand that it's probably true that nobody predicted that it would collapse this quickly. But nonetheless, he was warned that Kabul would collapse by the year's end. And he was okay with that. And even if this disaster that we're seeing now in terms of trying to get Americans and our allies out didn't occur, it would still mean the Taliban would take over the country. It would still mean that he was basically throwing away 20 years of blood and treasure to build an admittedly imperfect, corrupt, and at times, you know, awful, you know, kind of alternative, but still far better than the Taliban taking over Afghanistan. I'm 49 years old, so I have a very distinct memory of the Taliban, and um, I think that there's a lot of people who maybe don't know how bad it is, and but certainly Joe Biden should know, certainly Anthony Blinken should know, certainly Lloyd Austin should know that there that 
in foreign policy, there's often a choice between bad and terrible, and they chose terrible. They basically chose a catastrophe to end a stalemate. And um, they, so, so even if in the best case scenario that it's true that Biden, the vice that he was getting is that they didn't think it was gonna fall this quickly, even if that's true, it's still an terrible indictment. He was willing to basically risk and he was willing to live with the likelihood that this government would fall. There would be no political settlement. There would be no power sharing agreement, which is what the official policy was. Uh, he was willing to pull, pull, the, pull the cord. And, uh, you know, I mean, I could go on about all the sort of disgraces of Biden in the last week, but um, that's where we're at. <laughs> Hey, yeah. Eli, so I, I, I got a couple sure. questions. One, um, it seemed like the premise of the capitulation agreement was that the Taliban are going to take over. That there's no, they're not, if there was power sharing, we would have, if we expected power sharing, we would have had the Afghan government at the table, and they weren't. So it seems like, you know, I mean, to take the who the president is out of it, just the, the consensus and national security in Afghanistan, all the Afghan, uh, you know, uh, brain trust believe that eventually, you know, the Taliban's going to take over. So why don't we make a deal with them and have a deal with them? Um, and then taking aside for a minute, just the catas catastrophic incompetence of the way this was executed. It seemed to me like. We had told ourselves the story that we were in Afghanistan so that little girls could study calculus. When, in fact, I thought we were in Afghanistan. I'm 56, so I really remember 9-11. Uh, um, I thought we were in Afghanistan so that the Taliban had to live in caves. And my calculation is really simple. Taliban in caves equals good. Taliban in this in, uh, administrative state of Afghanistan, bad. Yeah, Taliban in the presidential palace, bad. Taliban in caves, good. That's yeah. that's a great way to sum it up. <laughs> yes. So Taliban in caves is good uh, at a fairly low cost. I mean, seven hundred billion dollars is our defense budget. I, I just said this to Victor uh, Hanson, who's on before you. Uh, that's about what is it like three percent, three and a half percent of GDP, I and mean, it's a huge amount of money, right? Um, if we're not going to spend it on Taliban and caves, what are we spending it on? It's. I think that what happened was that the at first the the base of the Democratic Party began to rethink um, and to turn on Democratic leaders, and this is sort of explains the rise of Obama um, because they began to sort of kind of reapprised after 9-11 the arguments that got us into Iraq and Afghanistan and the idea that we would have this long-term military commitment. But these were arguments that were potent, you know, in the moment of like, you know, when you had U.S. forces in Iraq and later Afghanistan basically like manning traffic stops and checking under the hoods of cars right. for car bombs, right. which I think is a pretty fair argument. I say this as a neocon, you know, warmonger hawk or whatever uh, you want to say. Right? So <laughs> that's, you know, so I understand why you wouldn't want that and why it's, you know, tough to ask everyday volunteers in our military to kind of, you know, sign up for this for tour after tour after tour. But that's not what was the, the that's not what was happening, you know, in the last five years in Afghanistan. What's happening in the last years is we had a very small force. They were almost all special operators. They were there to train, advise, and assist the Afghan military, 
They were there to basically provide through contractors the maintenance for the close air support, which is how the Afghan military trained. And they, in some cases, were there right. to be these sort of intelligence spotters to paint targets for the for airstrikes. That's a totally different mission, and that's very sustainable in my view. And to, to conflate the two, then I think that, that I was going to say, like, I, I think Biden's going to get, uh, you know, justifiable historical scorn and political rejection, I hope, for this. And he deserves it. But he may, he's making a calculation politically that the American people wanted out. And they wanted out, and this is awful, and they're going to get over it because people, the American people tend to get over it. That, that's his calculation. Whether it happens or not, I don't know. But he is correct in looking at the genuine, general, general feeling of American voters, both left and right, like, get out of here. Let's get out of here. Are, the, are Americans just no, lo- no longer have the stomach to be the world superpower? I mean, in ni- I said 20 years after 40, ni- 1965, where there was there this broad consensus in America that we should get out of Japan, that well, what are we doing? The Chinese are fine. What are we doing? The Russians are fine. Like, what do we care? Was there, and I don't think there was. I mean, back we were the beginning, really, of a of a major proxy war in Vietnam. Well, Thirty years, nineteen seventy five, perhaps at least, maybe the Democratic right. Party, um, but certainly not nineteen sixty five. And so, um, but isn't that where we are now? I mean, if 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 you cannot muster an argument to keep Taliban in caves, so that equals no more nine eleven, which is basically the equation we went in there for. I'm setting Iraq aside because I thought that was foolish, but just talking about Afghanistan now. Then what argument can you make to defend Taiwan? What, is, what does it matter to us, Taiwan? China's a better trade dealer than Taiwan. They already speak Mandarin in Taiwan. China's it once was China. Why bother to why bother to have a blue water navy? Well, I think um, that the, on foreign policy, national security issues, I think most American voters are really looking for a level of confidence, and it's a little bit like. You know, I don't need to know all the details, but I want to know that it works. And these scenes are scenes of utter incompetence and failure, but also there's going to be these ripple effects. Yeah, can I just push back on that? Because I don't think they do, because what we just yeah. described, I yeah. think, and I agree with you, the past few years of Afghanistan, have, of our involvement in Afghanistan, have been incredibly efficient. They have done the job. 20 years in, that, in Afghanistan, we destroyed the Taliban, we put them in caves with no more 9-11s. Success. And Americans, I think a lot of Americans, maybe even a majority of Americans, are like, okay, yeah, but you know what? Forget that. Let's come home. Why are we spending any money or time there? So I'm not well, sure it's confidence I, I, because we I'm gave not them confidence. I'm entirely sure, though, that that's, like, really how – because this is not – let's be honest. Afghanistan wasn't a burning issue for anybody until this disaster. There wasn't – this wasn't motivating Democrats. It wasn't motivating Republicans. It wasn't motivating anyone. It was like – Eli, was like, to, yeah. to, to pile on, may I yeah. just elaborate on sure. – I think Rob is asking a question that's in my mind as well, but sure. I have a slightly different take on it, and it runs as follows. Okay. In my own mind, I was – before this catastrophe, <clears throat> I was of two minds about I, – I, honestly, I felt the force of the argument, never-ending war, what are we doing there, let's bring them home. I believe I felt that I was divided in my own mind, I believe, because in recent, not just in recent years, but beginning with, beginning in the W administration, Afghanistan, our 
presence in Afghanistan was explained to the American people in terms of building a new kind of nation. Women's rights, sending little girls to school, and on and on and on. And indeed, two or three weeks ago, when President Biden announced that we were going to be out by date certain, George W. Bush broke his dignified silence in this matter. And what did he say? He said, Laura and I spent a lot of time with Afghan women. We're concerned about the plight of Afghan And I have to say, crude though this may be, the first thought in my mind was, Afghan men have had 20 years to learn how to defend Afghan women. Why does George W. Bush think it's the job of American soldiers to defend Afghan women? Instead, and throughout all of this time, there was an our presence in Afghanistan could have been explained to the American people, and in my mind justified, in terms of the defense of our own republic. Not creating a new world for Afghans, defending our country. It, it is, am I on to something that from George W. Bush straight through, honestly, even if Donald Trump had come into office and he hadn't heard, spent 15 years hearing that we were there to create a new society, but instead we were there to defend this country and there were good specific military reasons to be there, even Trump would have had a different approach to it, I think. You don't buy a word of that. I can see from your face. Um, <laughs> I would, I, I, well, I, I would, I would challenge the idea that the Afghans didn't. I mean, Afghans died. I think you know there were you know maybe a hundred times more Afghans died in the Afghan war than Americans. They were dying in great numbers during the peace agreement or Zalmay Khalilzad's peace negotiations, um, and. The only the one thing that we were providing them was this kind of ability to kind of have the close air support, which was a great advantage against the Taliban. Um, so, so that's the first thing I would say is that you know we we trained an army that was going to be relying on us. And if I was a Marxist, perhaps I would try to explain that by saying, well, of course, because defense contractors want to you know continually get all this money. To uh, that's why they want these endless wars. But that is what we ended up doing. And that was the situation. But I would turn it around. I would sort of say, um, you know, by leaving the way that we're doing as precipitously as we're doing, with all of these sort of self-delusions, and then we're kind of hit in the face with all this reality, that kind of betrayal has enormous consequences in lots of other things that we want to do in the world. And again, I don't know that you need to explain that to the average American voter. But when there is another catastrophe, when we start feeling the repercussions, when we see more repercussions of this, uh, whether it is a Chinese move on Taiwan or another massive terrorist attack like 9-11, there will be a sense of why did you incompetence allow this to happen? And that should have been the motivation for both Trump and Biden to, 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 to turn around and not go down this road. Because there wasn't this, I mean, listen, I think there was in 2007 a real anti-war sentiment, in the same way that in right. 1969 there was a true anti-war sentiment in the country against Vietnam and that there was a real popular issue there. But I don't think in 2020 anyone really cared much about this. I just don't think it was a major issue. People mm -hmm. were worried about COVID. People were worried about, you know, race. There were all kinds of other things. There were much higher political priorities that were dividing the country. It wasn't like people were, you know, on, in the streets about the Afghanistan war and everything like that. It was Biden who chose to make it because he, somewhere along the line, 
internalized two things. One, it was an unwinnable war. It was a foul war we should get out. And two, I don't trust the generals. I don't trust the military. They trapped Obama when I was vice president, and I don't want, I'm not going to let them trap me. So he wasn't willing to hear what the implications were. And now he's dealing with it and trying to tell us, well, this was inevitable because of Trump's peace plan, and I don't buy it. And I think that it's not just a judgment of history. There will be a political problem for him depending on when the implications, the repercussions of, of this decision, uh, you know, when that debt comes due, people are going to ask, what the hell were we doing? And uh, the Taliban in caves versus Taliban in the palace argument is going to look like an obvious point that we elected our competent leaders to, to understand that so we could go on with the rest of our lives. And that's kind of where I think that, you, that this is, there is political peril here. Uh, so I kind of, I, I, I think it's short-sighted to say that Americans, you know, generally kind of agree it's an endless war. Who cares about the girls' schools? What are we doing there? That, that might be, there were 70% of the Americans, I guess, you know, a few weeks ago who supported this. Now it's down to 49%. I mean, I wonder why, but that number's going to drop. Right. Well, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. Yeah. Eli, last question, and no matter how many interviews you have today, you are not going to get this question from anywhere else other than the Ricochet Podcast. I've been listening to all this. Uh -oh. It's been great. My, my <laughs> beloved co-host, great questions. Your answers have been fascinating. But while I've been doing it, because I can't multitask, uh, I've been engaged in something that I like to call forensic typo typography, which is show me half of a word and I will try to figure out what it is. I can see half of the word on your T-shirt. And I've, I've teased oh. out that it's smitten, perhaps <laughs> smitten with the mitten, perhaps. No, smitten ice cream. I see. Yeah. Smitten with the mitten is what they say about Michigan. And I was thinking, how possibly could that be at work here? But smitten ice cream. Okay. Oh, great. I've got that solved. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, the Republicans say It's a very good ice cream place <laughs> in San Francisco. That the ice cream is so good, I had to buy it. Well, listen, wow. we understand you're a new father, so we're going to let you go because right now, as I said before, thank you. You should op open up a college thank account you so for your daughter and also go to sleep. Just go to sleep, even if you're not. Just you, trust me. Congratulations again, Eli. Oh, Bob, there won't be any colleges around. You you can teach her all she needs to know about critical race theory. <laughs> By the way, Rob, I have to tell you this just before I go that I am a huge fan of yours from Cheers to Glop. I like the whole Rob oh, Long. What a trajectory. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is the saddest trajectory ever. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, no. You did, uh, Eli. No, no, no. But uh, Eli, you did not. Really, you didn't have to say that. Yes. On behalf of Peter Robinson, the other right. plate of chopped liver. Uh, <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye, Eli. Thank you. That's right. Ah, yes. Well, of course, Rob. So I, my question is this. Like, somebody like that who says... I've been covering the intelligence community for a long time. Like, how much does he know? You know what I mean? Like, what, what does that mean? Like, does that mean, like, he, that people are giving him info? Like, so who's calling you? What do you call for info? I don't know. Just was, I didn't, didn't have time to ask him, but I would ask him next time. Like, what is, I'm not name the sources, but. Be honest. You know, just, you're, you're not really curious about this. You just think there may be a premise for a show in there. I think there might be a premise for something, yeah. It was just, uh, but I want to know what the, the the actual mechanics. I'm always interested in the mechanics. Like, do you call? Is it a is it a text situation? Do you have lunch somewhere? Where do you have lunch? 
Nothing with a trail, um, I imagine. You wouldn't want to text. You wouldn't want to email. You would want to meet somewhere oh, in a, you know, a, a parking garage behind a pillar and say a few things. I don't know. Yeah. Or it is just some, simply something as meeting somebody for drinks in Georgetown somewhere and uh, looking around your shoulder and saying yeah. what you need to say. I don't know. Well, um, I told him to sleep, right? Uh, because as a new father, he is going to need it's to do that. Sleep, sleep, though. Sleeping is so difficult. Well, so no, not really. The thing is, when you're an exhausted terrible for, and what? Excuse me? Yeah. Yes. When you're an exhausted first parent, a parent of a, of a child, you can sleep anywhere. You can sleep on a bed of Legos because you're so tired. But, you know, as life goes on, you want to make your sleep the most comfortable thing because how much time do you spend in bed? Well, a lot. Okay. You know, here's the thing. Even, uh, you know, easygoing types like Rob who are who just float through life without a care have your moments of demanding only the best. And I know it's hard to think of Rob as somebody who would say, send this back. It's not good. No, but, you know, we all have those moments. Uh, for example, I do not compromise on certain things. Um, I'm not going to tell you exactly what those are because the minute you do, people say, no, you're wrong about that. What you should really do is to have that. You know? uh, Rob, do you compromise on your cocktails, for example? Or are you one of those ecumenical folks who say, eh, it'll do? I mean, eh, it'll do. Yeah, okay. All right. Honestly? But everybody knows the place they can go to get the perfect you know, latte or the best eggs benedict or an un- Beatable, old-fashioned, you know, because well, sometimes you're just not going to settle for anything unless you've got to go get the best. Well, we all have uncompromising standards in particular places in our lives. So why would you skip out on quality in the place where you spend a third of your life? And that's the bar. No, I'm sorry. That's your bed. Sleeping. Yes. Sleeping. The husband and wife team that started Bowen Branch realized no sheets on the market met the standards for quality. So they created their own luxuriously soft and expertly crafted signature sheets. Experience uncompromising comfort for yourself with the best-selling 100% organic cotton signature hemmed sheets. Their cloud-weight, super-soft sateen weave gets even softer with every wash. The sheets are crafted to the highest standards and attention to detail from sourcing to packaging. Bowen Branch is dedicated to quality at every step. And I love them. Absolutely so. I can't remember how many years I've been doing this. I do know that they're absolutely right when they say they get better with every single wash. They're just the best sheets. But I also have another box that I like to keep because it's it's pristine. And sometimes if the guest comes over and we change the sheets, I'm going to show it. Because unboxing bowl and branch sheets is like taking an iPad out. It makes it, No, it makes taking an iPad out of Apple's exquisite packaging like 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 bringing a set, you know, handful of coal out of a paper bag. Anyway, that attention to detail is the sort of thing from the packaging to the product itself that tells you you've got the best. Yes, there is. Designed and manufactured for maximum comfort and durability, perfect balance of weight and breathability to pamper warm or cool sleepers through any season. The only corners they cut are the ones involving the middleman, so you can get these sumptuous sheets at a remarkable price. Give your bed the White House treatment with sheets that three presidents have fallen in love with. So experience an entirely new standard of comfort. You're going to have to visit bowlandbranch.com. Get 50% off your first set of sheets with promo code Ricochet. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com. Promo code Ricochet. And we thank Bowl and Branch for sponsoring this, the Ricochet podcast. Well, something other than all that. What's on your mind? <laughs> is, there any, is there any space for anything else on your mind? I know that I... You know, I I doom scrolled about this over and over and over again. I mean, we're at a point now where we're, we're actually getting we get tweets from Afghanistan. Uh, New York Times has a story today about how the Taliban is going to use social media to help rule Afghanistan. Wow, that's your father's Taliban after all. Well, yeah, that's not going to work. But I, I I don't know. Like I I guess the question is like what what, what are we watching? The spectacular incompetence of 
um, a bunch of know-it-alls who blew it. Yes. And or, you know, um, a, a, a big change in America's commitment to a position in the world um, as, a, as a whole, not a nonpartisan movement, which these things happen. I mean, my, my theory in life is generally that the screaming is always loudest after the change has occurred. So after something has occurred already is when the disasters happen, like the disasters and the fire, the disaster is the fact that you just you weren't maintaining your electoral system or something like that. Is this the I don't is this the beginning of something or this is the confirmation of a, of, a, of a trend? And my my fear is, or my I guess my conclusion temporarily is that it's the confirmation of a trend that um, that we just don't want to be engaged in the world the way we have been for a century almost. Well, Peter, um, might you say that the reason that we can't we shouldn't be engaged in the world is that we've been told by all of our betters that we have no moral standing whatsoever. That in fact, this is a uniquely depraved country founded on the worst possible sins. We have no moral standard, and we best. But that's we not do. that's not that, that's not the belief of people who 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 think that we the America. Uh, there's a huge portion of the America sort of retreat refersers, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Just in the legitimate position who don't buy into that. No, I mean, but all the, these things come buying together. into that doesn't mean that. But it all comes together. I mean, when 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 that's the general theme that you're getting in the popular discourse, yes, it's going to affect the way people think that they, the swaggering American is a bad thing. The, the American who wants to transplant his values elsewhere. So we look, I mean, Victor Davis Hanson remarked about the, uh, the the pride flag outside the Kabul embassy, and I wrote about that this week too, elsewhere, I can't remember where. We put out, the, we hung out the pride flag and had uh, the, the Kabul embassy tweet, yay, LBGTQ, etc. Which seems to me like cultural imperialism of the worst sort, is it not? Isn't that the very definition of what we were told the West was wrong in doing? Does that does that not sound like white supremacy man's burden to go to other countries and tell them you've got to fly the flag, regardless of whether or not you think the ideas behind it are a good idea? It's not their it's not their culture, and we were trying to change it to make it so. That's the only value it seems that we will we'll, we'll go to other places and talk. The only thing about, good about America is that we can go to a country that believes in throwing gay people off the the, uh, the top of the building and, and hoisting the pride flag. That's good, but everything else is rooted eternally in these in the in the fundamental inherent sins of America, and we have no right to tell anybody that we have a moral standing. We have no right to proclaim American exceptionalism because unless we're saying we're exceptionally bad, or is that nonsense, Peter? Entirely possible. No, no, I'm just thinking. Well, I, I have two thoughts, I guess, and one of them is just an image. I ran into H.R. McMaster yesterday. He's a colleague here at the Hoover Institution, Donald Trump's first, I beg your pardon, second national security advisor, retired from the Army <clears throat> with three stars on his shoulder. And HR was strolling around with his little grandson, and he showed me his phone. And as he's strolling around in the August sunshine here in California with his grandson, the former national security advisor to the President of the United States, is tapping away at his iPhone trying to get people who helped this country, Afghans, translators, into the Kabul, into the um, airport so they can get out of there. And I thought, this is really bad. This is really unnerving when a senior official is just reduced to trying to call in favors by iPhone to help this country's, to help people who risk their lives to help this country. Item one. Item two I tried asking this of Eli, and Eli didn't, I think Eli more or less just batted away the question, but 
it's been a long time since we had a president who could explain why we had so many bases, why we were doing what we were doing. George W. Bush says we're going into Iraq because they have weapons of mass destruction, and then they didn't have weapons of mass destruction. We go into Afghanistan to punish the Taliban. We wipe them out in three weeks, but we have to stay there. Well, it turns out there are good military reasons to stay there, but that's not what George W. Bush told us. We're going to create a democracy like our own. We're going to... It was, it, we, 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 sh, we need a president who can relate what we're doing to the defense of our country. In a sense, can't you say that that was the, you know, the good luck for America to have one polar enemy, Russia, and one articulate leader, Reagan, at the right time, <laughs> right? Um, and one American leader, Reagan, who really saw uh, as his primary job to end the Cold War. That was what he's supposed to do. Uh, and he did it. Um, now we have a series of positions and a right. shifting uh, cast of characters of strategic competitors, maybe more military competitors. I mean, what is, is Ch- we know China is an economic competitor. Uh, that may be good for us or bad for us. Who knows? We, we don't know what their military designs are. Uh, historically, they oh, haven't had so. them so much as to encircle the Chinese-speaking world, right? That's one thing they've done. But other than that, it's really actually a hard thing to do, a hard thing to, 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 to figure out. We, we are, in fact, without a blueprint. The interesting thing is the most compelling argument I've heard American politicians give against nation-building was given by George W. Bush in the 2000 campaign where he ran as a, uh, a we were not going to build nations abroad as a repudiation of the Clinton um, or the Clinton-era uh, trend of nation-building. Nation-building used to be something that we said uh, as a good thing in the 90s, and then George W. Bush came around and said, we're not doing that. That's a a giant failure. That's what leads to um, Somalia, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Six months later, nine months later, actually literally nine months later, we are building a nation and then building a second nation, nation, doing a thing that uh, clear heads knew was impossible to do. And then one calamity happens and we kind of freak out. And so I, I'm, I'm just more interested, to me, I'm more interested in um, whether we're, whether that's natural, whether it's natural in a country, a rich country, though, but like now facing true comp- competition around the globe, uh, needs, is, is redirecting its attention and its resources. Um, and, um, and one of the things we forgot to do, I think, is to connect, oh, which I think is legitimate, is to connect our presence overseas in all of our places, deployments, um, you know, Europe, what the West and the East and the Near East, uh, and connect them directly to American interests and security. And it right. seemed to me that if you can't make that argument to yourself about Afghanistan, then I really don't know how you make it about Taiwan. I don't know how you make it about West Germany. I don't know how you make it about Guam, really. I don't know how you make it about almost any the, – the, the, the Afghanistan seems like that's the freshest wound in American um, history. I mean, 20 years, a 9-11 is only 20 years. And if 20 years now is something we say to ourselves, like, well, that was 20 years ago, uh, we're not – we shouldn't be leading the world. That's not a culture that should be leading the world. 
And I suspect that there is a culture on the horizon that thinks in larger terms and is able to construct long-term plans. And unfortunately for us, that culture is the Chinese. Mm -hmm. um, so we either got to, like, step up or step down. But this ripping the Band-Aid off the way we've done in Afghanistan is probably the worst choice. The, um, the debacle in freeing the, the Iranian hostages that I talked about at the, at the top of the hour capped off an entire decade where Americans were increasingly enervated because we didn't feel as if we could do anything. We didn't have the competence. We just, we just lacked the, the, the confidence in our own competence for a variety of reasons. This feels different because if you look around at the problems that bedevil this country, it's not that we lack the ability to solve them. We lack the nerve, the will to go and do what everybody knows needs to be done. If you have the guys at the, at the Afghan, at the Kabul airport, who are not able to help people get into the airport because the rules of engagement say they can't go outside and fight the Taliban, that's not because we're weak. It's because we have chosen not to do so. We have chosen not to make the streets safe in American cities by abandoning a host of police policies. We have chosen to let drug addicts fill the streets of San Francisco's and the parks of other countries because we have chosen not to deal with them by sweeping them out or putting them into institutions which will humanely deal with them. There's a whole series of things that this country has chosen not to do by a managerial class that does not seem interested in the least in solving these things either because they're hamstrung by particular political ideologies that keep them from doing what needs to be done, or they don't care because there's more money and power to be made by perpetuating the system. So that's what I think is different about this. We know what to do. We just, we're just we the soldier in, in the middle of Afghanistan with rules of engagement that have been set by a guy way back in a desk somewhere else that tells him that he's got more problems if he loses a bullet and more paperwork to, fall, to, to fill out than if he does something, that if he you know, shoots uh, you know, somebody under the proper set of engagement rules in those terms. Does that sound sort of kind of like what you guys feel, or um, is this going to be one of those things where you say, no, not really, and then agree with everything that I just said? A Rob Long specialty. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. Um, I don't know. I think it is a question. I'm not sure. I think I had lunch with a uh, friend of mine on Saturday, Walter Kern, who I hope is oh, going to be doing a podcast for us. Tell him I follow him, um, and I think he's absolutely fantastic. I will do that. Yeah. Uh, and we were joking around darkly about stuff, and he said, "Is there is there anything? Is there any any reckoning America won't just kind of kick down the road? Is there any can that we don't as a culture?" At the very beginning, the foundations of our nation have just kicked down the road, like waited, like, uh, you know, later on we'll deal with this. And part of it is that's a you know, funny, cynical thing about America, and Americans are, you know, dynamic, and we all have ADD and all that stuff. Uh, part of it is our DNA. You know, obviously that's that's the, the Constitution is many, many things, but it is also uh, so, the kind of a software engineering they call agile, where you're like – uh, we're going to keep doing things at that we're going to start and we're going to keep fixing it and we hope that like you know down the line someone comes up with a solution to slavery but we're not going to wait and solve it now we're going to start a country and just kind of fix it later and that's optimistic and that's what americans do best is like they think that the future is going to be better than the past that's like in our dna whether we like it or not um and so that is part of what drives our desire to kick the can down the road but i think another part is our desire to turn everything into a story and and we want a happy ending because that's what we get and we watch too much 
TV and too much news on TV. And so it just feels like we're scrolling through real life. And we're kind of looking for the big finish. And when the big finish isn't on, we got to change the channel. And culturally, I feel like that is we just lost the thread of the story for Afghanistan because it was not that satisfying. And what's satisfying about what's not happening? Security isn't satisfying. Um, it is like, you know, young people at the end of the year, they look at their bills and they say, why am I spending so much money on health insurance? I didn't even get sick. What a, what a rip. I don't need health insurance. I didn't get sick because, you know, you don't want to pay for something that you didn't notice. Um, and that's what I, my concern is that not I, – I, look, I understand that we have our, 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 our politicians and our leaders are incompetent. I accept that. I accept that this is a fiasco. All that's true. But I'm wondering whether we as a country have the stomach, at, and even if we should have the stomach – I'm not arguing that we should, but just I wonder whether we have the stomach for – Maintaining our long-term global security interests. Even that's that's when been a theme seem, for you, this whole yeah. show. Yeah. I, I, still, I don't it's know what we have. That's my question. It's the, it's, the, it's the question. It's the question. I, I mean, Trump was onto something. Excuse me. There's, I've got about ten different thoughts buzzing around in my mind, and it turns out you can't talk ten different thoughts at one time, so I'll just choose one. Well, we have to wrap in 90 seconds, Peter, so if you give nine seconds to each one of the ten <laughs> thoughts, we'll be good. Wait a minute. You guys get to hold forth for reams and reams of prose, and I have 90 no, seconds? No, you get to go. I don't know the answer. I was thinking about this because I was doing a little bit of writing about it. Communism holds that history is predetermined. We don't believe that. That's the whole point of democracy. It's open-ended. And I was tremendously impressed by the way Victor put the question, which is really Rob's question. We are, in all kinds of ways, still by far the most powerful, most talented, richest, most dynamic nation on Earth. And we can choose to, to embrace those strengths and build on them. And from this economy... This economy, with its technical dynamism, of course we can throw off a military that p pursues our interests and protects this republic. But at the same time, look at all this rot that has set in. The American people get to choose in a series of elections. It would strike me that if, if a decade from now we haven't got this sort of cleaned out of our system and moved along, then it's over. But it's always been almost over. The 70s were a catastrophically bad decade in all kinds of ways. So the short answer is, I just don't know. None of us knows, and that's sort of what we, not to, not to whack, I mean, I'm not going to be eloquent, but the danger is that I might be grandiloquent, but that's sort of what Rick, that's what we're trying to do here. All we can do is fight the fight and ask the questions and do our best in the underlying confidence that the country is worth fighting for. Will it, all things come to an end? Maybe this is the moment for this country. I, but I'm, but it won't, it won't come. I, I intend to fight, and so do the two of you. But the answer, who knows? Who knows? It's exhilar It's scary, but it's exhilarating at the same time. And there is a great place to end this podcast. Worth every minute you just gave listening to it, and we thank you for that, is brought to you by Made In, by ButcherBox, and by Bowling Branch. Support them for supporting us, and of course, join Ricochet today 
I don't make me make Rob give you another member pitch. It's been a while, so you know, we're keeping that one in our holster just in case. Uh, listen to the best of Ricochet, which is a radio show on the Radio America Network, hosted by moi, and you can check your local listings to see if it pops up near you. And take a minute to give us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts. Would it kill you? Apparently not. Thank you for listening. Thanks to our guests and our sponsors, and we'll see everybody in the comments at Ricochet 4.0 next week. Next week, fellas. Next week. I took 120 seconds, James. I'm sorry, I went 30 seconds. <laughs> you no, guys had a no, that was a great second to freeze. conversation. Am I done? Thank you, thank you. See ya.